Hey world, it's nice to meet you. I'm Cassidy Jackson, and you are listening to Cassie's Crafting Conundrum. More Gen Z authors seem to be coming out of the woodwork in the past few years, myself included. And I want us to be able to have a safe space to express ourselves, since the online world is a scary place, and we might feel extremely alone. In each episode, I am highlighting an amazing Gen Z author who has agreed to share part of their story online. Sit back, relax, and please, remember, you are never alone as an author of any age. Hello, welcome to Cassie's, welcome back, excuse me, to another episode of Cassie's Crafting Conundrum. It is yet another early episode for me. I had to set an alarm. And for once, my guest is actually in a later time zone than me, but still in the United States. So I will let her introduce herself and whatever information she wants to share. Good morning. Hello. Good morning. It's early for me too. It's like eight in the morning and that's like before when I typically wake up. So we'll see how this goes. (laughs) Um, Hi everyone. I am Jamie Michelle Schwartz. I am a recording artist, songwriter, a podcast host myself, and an author of young adult fiction. And I'm in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Yeah. Oh my goodness. That is, I didn't realize it was early for you too. I was just, well, you did say it's like, <laughs> mornings are good for me. And then I was like, time zones. Hold on a second. <laughs> Let me do some math. Yeah. So that is actually what we are here today to talk about is how songwriting and fiction writing kind of affect each other, don't affect each other. So how did you get into songwriting in the first place? Yeah. So for the songwriting, I've always loved music as a like a child like when I was very young I would always like write songs with my friends and I played piano since I was 10 years old so I was always musical but in terms of songwriting it's really interesting because I started to dive into writing songs when I was a junior in college and that's when I added my creative writing degree so I double majored in music and creative writing in undergrad and at the time when I was doing both is when I started songwriting, which is really interesting when we get into the whole thing, how songwriting and creative writing, fiction writing are similar in many ways. And so it's interesting how I really started to do songwriting when those collided. As soon as you said, like, songwriting and fiction writing kind of go hand in hand, I could see it at first because I've, I'm just a hobby violinist now, but I was classically trained in violin for 10 years of my life it doesn't mean I'm any good at it (laughs) but it means that I do know a thing or two about music and so it's kind of another part of my life colliding because normally when I do these episodes it's the STEM major in me that has that's in common with the guests but here I have music which is That's actually so interesting. really interesting yeah. to me that so many people know music, but if you're not classically trained or even trained in any type of music, you don't know music 
as, you know, producers, no music or musicians, no music. Right. Yeah, that's definitely a valid point. I've written with songwriters who don't know any music theory, can't even play an instrument. And I think it's really awesome because there are some very, very popular songwriters who can't read a piece of music, but they write number one songs. And it's because they have the lyrics in them and they have the melodies in them. And maybe they don't understand what exactly they're playing or what exactly they're singing, but it sounds good. And so they go with that. But then you definitely have those musicians in the room and those producers who actually understand the music in order to translate that into like an, a recording or get people to play it with you live. But it's really interesting how there's definitely a spectrum of people who have musical talent and then the people who you know really understand how to read music music theory and all of that yeah no as soon as I'm realizing that as we go along there is because I'm very new to this whole fiction writing traditional publishing kind of land as I'm calling it and the way that there is also a spectrum of you can have complete amateurs. I don't say amateurs, and I say that lightly because amateur is somebody who's just beginning in something. And I've been fiction writing since I was 13, but writing a full manuscript, I have never finished any, and so, in that way, it makes me, I kind of think of myself as an amateur because I'm just beginning in finding my own rhythm and how to finish a draft and how to finish, you know, something that I'm proud of so I don't have to go back and edit it because that's where I fall in fiction writing is I go back and I start editing before I finish the draft. And I don't know if songwriters also do that as well. They fall into that editing pitfall and just never finish a song. Oh, yeah, completely. I love revision, both as a songwriter and a fiction writer. It's my favorite part of the process. But there definitely is that line you have to cross of not editing too much where you're not getting something done. And I definitely have faced that with songwriting, especially like after you write the first draft of a song, I never record or perform a first draft of a song, just like with fiction writing, you're never going to pitch a first draft of a manuscript to an agent, you mm -hmm. never record a first draft of a song. And so there is that process of, you know, going through and tweaking the melody, tweaking the chords, the lyrics, making things make sense where they don't, making it stronger. And I definitely, um, I'm kind of a perfectionist, which I really need to get out of because I'm in two very creative industries. Mm -hmm. But there is that point where you're editing, you're editing, and you're like, you know, I can't, got this to where I like it like you go through it so many times you're like yeah but this first verse like I still hate it and the chorus always isn't hitting and not as hooky as I want it to be and so there is that battle for sure like with the songwriting as well and then just getting it to a place where you're happy with it because nothing's perfect especially art you know like mm -hmm. you can edit a manuscript for 10 years but at, a, at some point you gotta say all right it's good enough it's it's strong enough I have to send it out there because you can edit something forever, you know? Oh, yeah. And actually, speaking of which, I am very proud with this manuscript that I'm currently working on. I've been working on it for a year and I think about a month 
now and I am still going. I'm actually about halfway done with part two of four. So I guess I'm getting out of the mindset of I am an amateur in this. I really need to stop thinking of myself as an amateur because I've been writing for seven years, but it's really been off and on. It hasn't really been, oh, consistent. And I think that's where I need to draw the line of what actually is an amateur in an industry because it's really subjective. It is. It definitely is. And I, I definitely think you shouldn't think of yourself as an amateur. And this is a whole like aspiring thing too. Like if you say, I'm an aspiring songwriter, I'm an aspiring author. If you're doing the craft, you're not an inspiring that like you are. And I think that mindset, like for a really long time, I called myself an aspiring songwriter. When I had music release and people were like, no, literally like you're a recording artist, you have stuff out there. And I think it was mm-hmm. because I was putting myself in the box of, I'm not a hit songwriter and therefore I'm aspiring. And like right now, like I'm, I'm not agented yet, but I wrote yeah. three manuscripts and I'm not going to call myself an aspiring author because I did it. I wrote the books. And so I need to stop distinguishing an author and an aspiring author between the people who have an agent and publishing deals and the people who don't. And it's definitely a mind game and we can definitely fall down those traps for sure. Yeah, no, as I'm talking with you, I'm picturing my Twitter bio and I think I literally have aspiring author in my Twitter bio (laughs) exactly for that reason. And like I said, I called myself an amateur even though I've been writing off and on for seven years because I have not finished a manuscript. And then I'm I'm looking back kind of in my filing cabinet in my brain of like all of the times that I've shelved a project because I either got tired of it or it just wasn't working anymore. And so then I was like, you know what? I'm an aspire I didn't even really call myself an author until I guess I started calling myself an author when I was 13 and I was like, I'm going to write a novel and this is going to be so much fun. But then as I got into high school and I started becoming more and more a STEM person in the way of that I took English classes and I took creative writing classes, but it was just STEM. And so I kind of got away from humanities and then when I came back to it when I was 19 it was like I was kind of starting from scratch again so it's interesting when did you actually get into fiction writing now I'm curious like when did you get into that so I would like write little stories when I was in middle school is when I started to my knowledge, I can't remember completely, but I'm pretty sure I started writing like a little book when I was in like sixth or seventh grade. And I called it like Finding Lizzie or something like that. I've got to find this on my computer and see if I still have it. But like, that's when I did it for fun, just like I did music for fun. But I have this vivid memory of like, not doing good in English in high school. Very weird. Like I took like advanced like math and science, Spanish even, mm-hmm. history. But I've never taken an advanced English class in high school. And that was always like odd to me. Like I struggled in English classes. And I think Mm -hmm. it was because I wasn't the kind of person who liked 
to be put into a box of like a yes or no black and white answer. I was always looking for interpretations. And so when I'm like doing these classes, I was like, the symbolism is this and the metaphor is this. I'm like, yeah, but I see it as this. And so like, I really struggled in English classes because my brain like wasn't wired for the, you know, the classes that prepared you for the standardized testing or whatever. Uh-huh. And so that's how I was in high school. But in senior year, I took a creative writing class. And that's the very first time that I really got to do more of like creative writing, fiction writing. And I remember my teacher said, you should major in English in college. And I was just like, I kind of like laughed to myself. I'm like
my spring semester of my freshman year, I hit a block where I was like, I had been going to my classes. I had been doing the work, but it just wasn't enjoyable for me anymore, if that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. And I was just going through the motions. And my friends were like, are you okay? I'll be like, yeah, I'm fine. And then as the semester progressed, they stopped asking me if I was okay because I would always say like, I'm fine. Don't worry about it. Everything is going fine. And they would literally be like, no, you are not happy. Something needs to change. You are just going through the motions. You're not really, I wasn't exactly, you know, depressed. I was just forcing myself into a box. Right. Because I was 12 when I decided to become a marine biologist. And so I literally grew up half of my life thinking that I was going to do this and I was going to get a PhD and I was going to do all of these things. And so it was just really hard for me to kind of figure out another life in a way. And so to have somebody else be like, yeah, I was doing something, but then other people told me I should try this. And I tried it and it worked out. That made me so much happier. I know it's a little weird because I've been switching my, I've switched my major and I'm happy in it. But to have somebody else be like, yeah, it's okay to change. Like, I feel like a lot of Gen Z, whether it's younger Gen Z, middle Gen Z, or like the older Gen Z who already have scary adult jobs, <laughs> they all have, like, our generation has something in common where we don't think it's okay to switch. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. I I even like changed my music degree. So when I started, I was in music therapy and I decided that wasn't for me. And so I just switched to the Bachelor of Arts in music. But even that was hard. And it was within the same, you know, like area of study. And so when people were telling me like English, I'm like looking at my schedule, like, first of all, like as a music major, you need to take like a bunch of zero credit classes, like your choir or your piano ensemble and the this and the that. Like there's so many things you need to take on top of the actual classes that are like zero or one, cre one credit, which is ridiculous because it packs your schedule. So I'm looking at like, I don't know how I can double major, but I decided I wanted to. And when I told my advisor, like I had two advisors and I was in the honors program too. So I technically have three advisors and mm -hmm. They were all like, well, you're going to have to push back your graduation. I'm like, I'm still graduating in 2019 spring. Like, that's when I'm graduating. And they're like, yeah, but you need, like, all these classes. And I'm like, I'm going to do it. And I honestly, like, I took, like, 20 credits a semester or more from, like, my spring of junior year to when I graduated. I needed, like, permission from the dean, like, signatures and, like, that, and letting the registrar know it was okay for me to do this because they're like, you're right. maxing yourself out. Mm -hmm. But I was, like, so determined to still graduate on time. But I was definitely afraid of change. And I was like, what if I'm making the wrong decision? But it wasn't like I changed my – dropped my music degree. I kept it, but I added another one, which just doubled my workload. But it was the right decision. And so I think sometimes change can be difficult. 
and that's definitely something I'm experiencing as a, on the creative side too like with writing manuscripts and trying to find an agent I'm starting to try different genres like I started in mystery young adult mystery was my thesis in my grad program then my second manuscript um, is a YA speculative thriller and that's the one I'm querying now but I also wrote a YA fantasy that I'm hoping to pitch in the fall if the thriller doesn't get representation and so I think just trying different genres too to discover you know what genre you write best in it's not always a genre you read the most maybe it's a different genre that you haven't explored as much and you find that you're a good fit for it and so it's definitely scary to change after you invest so much time into something but it can also bring good results if you try it's so interesting to me the fact that I was so set in my ways and a lot of my friends who are now looking at themselves and being like I don't like my major but I'm going to stick with it or my major is a lot of work and I'm only enjoying a certain part of the coursework so what do I do and so I would tell them kind of my own journey into like change is bad oh my gosh because with being born in the early 2000s and growing up in an ever-changing world change to me was just and still is it was just scary to me yeah and Absolutely. going out and being like I don't like myself in my current major. I have to change. And then going back to a manuscript that I had started in 2019 when I was a senior in high school. It's just odd for me that I'm like in a place where I'm happy, but I'm not used to it because I think we put ourselves in these boxes and we just don't want to crawl out of them because they're comfortable. Yeah, I, absolutely. And I think that in terms of the boxes thing, I think the industries have a lot to do with that. Because, you know, like in the music industry, there is this belief that multi-genre isn't good and this and that or whatever. Well, I'm a multi-genre artist. I do pop and country. And I've had people tell me, to me, don't do that. Pick one. And I'm being put in a box with my creativity. I don't want to pick mm -hmm. one. I, like, I'm going to write what I want. And this year, I'm up for a music award for multi-genre artist of the year. If I would have listened to those people telling me not to do it, I would not be up for that award. Wow. And so I think that it's really difficult to not listen to the chatter, and especially in the publishing industry, too. You know, there's a lot going on. There's a lot of different perspectives. And it's really, it's really easy to listen to that and fall down all these traps of like everybody's opinions when they're not you know aligning like they're all different and you're trying to figure out like what to do and how to do it and in those times of like letting the industry really take over your mind it definitely constricts the creativity as well and so I think it's really difficult to ignore that sometimes in order to not lose your inspiration and lose your creativity because especially in publishing lately there's been a lot of negativity on Twitter especially mm -hmm. and I'm seeing a lot of things and I'm seeing people post things that are like really alarming and like not only discouraging but like very disturbing too 
and it's really hard to you know not want to say all right screw this i'm done i'm I'm going somewhere else that's easier because i love writing i really want to do this and that's just the nature of being an author is dealing with all this stuff going on in publishing and focusing on your craft and trying to improve your craft and believing in yourself when there's all this stuff going on it's hard it really is i actually am not on social media a lot and i think for me it's the fact that there is that negativity and i know it's out there but for me it's so strange i was so used to going against the tide because in middle school and high school and i guess maybe some elementary school too but mostly middle school and high school I got bullied for not fitting into a, like a, the stereotypical box of oh, me you know, too. a I middle schooler or a high schooler. And so to come into this industry where I was bright eyed, bushy tailed, and you know how whenever you start something new, whether it be middle school or high school, college, a grad program, you're like, this is going to be great. It's all going to be sunshine and rainbows. And as I'm growing older, I'm realizing I have to go into things knowing that they're not all sunshine and rainbows. And it's going to be okay if it's not sunshine and rainbows. Yeah, that's a really great point. Sorry you were bullied. I was as well. I think a lot of creative types are, you know, it's you're different. Your brain thinks differently. I know for sure my brain works way different than my sister's who's a doctor. Like I'm very creative. She's very scientific. And so it's like when you're in high school, especially middle school too, um, I have so many memories of getting bullied because I was a musician, because I was this and that. I wasn't popular. I wasn't in band, which is ridiculous. So in my school, the band was popular, but the chorus kids were like not, which is crazy to me because it's both music, but that's just the kind of thing that happens. And um, I think, you know, I definitely didn't lose myself to all that back then. I stayed true to who I was and did what I wanted. And look at me now, but it's like one of those things where there are differences and especially, I don't know, like, I don't know if you feel about like this, but, you know, especially in writing Twitter, I think there is like a popular group of people. I see all the yeah. tweets coming up and especially doing like pitch events, like they get hundreds of likes and stuff because they have like all these people who like them. Right. And, and they retweet. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the thing with me and the pitch events is I try them because you never know. Right. Um, I'm very quiet on Twitter. Like, I post on Twitter, but in terms of, like, engaging in the publishing stuff that goes on, I'll read it just to be, like, informed of what's happening. But I don't engage, especially when it's something negative, because I don't want my reputation tied to any of that. And so I'm very quiet on Twitter in the publishing world. And so I don't consider myself even close to being one of the popular ones on Twitter. So when these pitch events come up and when there's, like, a bunch of things going on, I'm not the one that people are engaging with, which is fine with me, because I don't want to be seen as someone who caused problems or got in a Twitter war with somebody. And so I think there's definitely that distinction too. But then again, like these are the people who get a lot of agent likes and it's like <laughs> trying not to focus on that because that's just one path to publishing. Right. And there are multiple different paths. Yeah. For a lot of this stuff. And so for me, I'm also not very popular, even though I am engaging more. Yeah it seems like you have to engage a lot with the people of Twitter. And as an introvert, 
to me, that kind of goes against my nature. Oh, yeah, same. <laughs> I'm an introvert, too. Completely agree. And so when I started this podcast, it took me three months, not only because I was do like, I was, a, I'm a full-time college student. And I'm also a full-time STEM college student. <laughs> so I have to be very strategic with my time. And I'm at my dream school, which is amazing for me. However, it's my dream reach school. So when I'm there, everything is about academics and everything is about passing my classes. <laughs> and so writing kind of falls to the side and writing Twitter falls to the side and so I come back on school breaks and so much has happened it's kind of a whirlwind I don't know how like the songwriting Twitter is if you're more active there could you like um, do maybe a comparison yeah I mean I guess I want to say that the music Twitter space is as active I mean it's active but it's definitely not the same like the mm -hmm. writing community is like thriving all the time the music one, it's more of like, I, it's more of a networking thing, whereas I feel like the writing community is just like, not vibes, but like you're making connections with other writers and being friends with other writers. But in terms of music, it's definitely more networking. Like my following list in terms of music is basically like radio presenters I know, publicists, managers, labels, other artists I'm friends with. So it's definitely more of a networking thing and me keeping up with people who have featured me or platforms I want to be featured on. Whereas I feel like the writing community is more of a support network where like these people are in the same boat as me trying to get agents or maybe have agents in our submission or whatever. But I think it's more of a supportive space, whereas music is more of like a businessy networking space in terms of my own experiences. I never realized that music Twitter is basically just LinkedIn. Oh, yeah, literally. But... <laughs> yeah. For some reason, it. I always think that there are other spaces within Twitter that are just really active and really supportive. But I'm now realizing through you that it's just not the case. No. Some people just use it as LinkedIn without the LinkedIn <laughs> label. Yeah, and it's really interesting too because when I was starting with music and, you know, doing all that, that was basically my whole feed and my whole, like, network. But now that I'm really trying to get into publishing, that's, like, another half of my feed. And so people who follow me, they're going to see music stuff and they're going to see writing stuff. And it's been really interesting and really nice too because – a handful of people who have followed me as a songwriter are starting to realize she's trying to get published too. And I've done quite a few music interviews where they've brought up, how's your writing going? Have you gotten an agent? And it's really nice to see them embrace that side of me because they're not just focused on the music. And that makes me very happy because especially on my website too, I have my music stuff and my author bio on there and I have a blog on there. So I'm trying to make that a home for everything I do. And so it's nice to see people starting to recognize that I'm not just a songwriter, that I'm trying to make it as an author too. And that's another part of who I am. And then there's this podcast where it's literally just Gen Z writers. Yeah. <laughs> and you are actually, I think, the oldest 
person and the oldest Gen Z that I have on this podcast. Because you were actually the one who was like, yeah, maybe you should stop, you know, here because Gen Z is from, I think, 97? 97, yeah. A lot of people say, I was born in 1997. I just turned 26. So I think that, you know, I did some research when you asked me and a lot of people say that, um, Gen Z starts at 1997, so. Which is wild to me <laughs> because I was actually talking with another guest on this podcast who just happens to be one of my very, another one of my very good writing friends. And we were talking after I had finished the recording about, you know, Gen Z, millennials, Gen X, Gen Alpha. And Generation <laughs> Alpha actually starts in 2010, which is wild to me. That doesn't make sense. And it's just great. Generations work. Oh, boy. And Alpha is literally, like, the oldest person is 13 or turning 13 this year, which is wild to me. Yeah. Absolutely. I think it's so interesting. And I think it's also really cool, like looking at Gen Z, how there's a spectrum, but we all definitely have things in common. Like, I feel like I'm talking to a twin just because of like, all the things that we had in common that we talked about during the episode so far. I think it's really interesting. I think this generation as well, too, is more accepting and empathetic and connects to people more and can put ourselves in other shoes and kind of see the world through their eyes and understand the struggles and all that. And so, yeah, that's, that's awesome. Yeah. I'm realizing that not only am I putting my guests who are Gen Z out there, like Gen Z itself is not used to putting ourselves out there and being like, this is who I actually am because we've grown up sort of. And I say this in my introduction episode, we've grown up like learning how to use Instagram, learning how to use Twitter, learning how to use YouTube, just like the older generations have like the millennials, the Gen X, and maybe some baby boomers have had to learn. So we're kind of in the same boat as them. Like my little cousins who are, you know, they're like one of them is two, like they're 10, they're 12 and 13 or however old they are they've grown up with just an ipad or an iphone crazy and i'm over here going no that's not how i grew up like i say in the introduction episode like when i was two i was not on an iphone i was banging pots and pans (laughs) on the kitchen floor while my mom was trying to do household chores yeah. Like, that's so different from my two-year-old cousin, who still <laughs> goes outside and does a lot of things, but he knows how to use technology. I didn't even know what tech was. Yeah. Two. And so how really would, how did you, how did you break into the songwriting industry? And like, what is your advice for people who are trying to break into the industry? So in terms of this songwriting, I released my debut single in November of 2019, which is after I graduated from undergrad. 
And so just going back to something you said earlier, how you're a full-time student trying to do your novel, I didn't really start releasing music until I graduated undergrad because I didn't have the time. I was the same person, like so focused on my academics, didn't really go out any anywhere or anything. Like my friends were like, come to the party. No, like I literally have a final, like I'm studying. Like right. that was me. And so like, I didn't really commit to the songwriting thing until I was graduated from undergrad. I did it while I did my master's degree, but I had more time. Um, it was very intensive, but there was more time. It was like less work, but more like brain power, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so I released my debut single in 2019, had absolutely no idea anything about the industry, how to get into it, how to network, nothing. And I had to learn as I went. And I released a, another song in 2020. And that's the first time where I really started to wonder, okay, how do I get interviews? How to do this? And so I connected with somebody who runs a music blog in the UK, who I'm now really good friends with, and she gave me my first review. And then after that, she knew somebody who was doing a Christmas special. So she said, why don't you send your song to them, see if they play it, and they ended up playing it. And then they told somebody else about me. And so it kind of snowballed after there. And so it was just kind of like, one thing led to the next and networking in the music industry especially is very important i think it's important in publishing too but once you have your agent like they kind of do the thing for you like you definitely need a network and all of that but as an independent artist you literally got a network because one person's connection can lead to somebody else's and so it kind of snowballed from that and then i started to really put myself out there more i started to understand how to pitch myself so that's something that's similar with both industries when you're pitching an agent they want your query letter and they expect it to be a certain way and they want your opening pages to be a certain way so when you're pitching your music they want what's called an epk which is an electronic press kit so you have your bio your music any press you've had some sort of video whether that's a lyric video or a music video your contact information your social media so there's certain things that are expected but when i started i didn't know this and mm -hmm. so i was getting ghosted by people because i didn't know this and once i discovered what that was i put one together and then i started to learn what a press release was so when you're pitching a certain release so say i have a new single coming out i need to put together a press release for that so that includes a short bio then inspiration about the song specific facts about the song like its genre instrumentation all that kind of stuff like the metadata of it in a way mm -hmm. and then they want your artwork and then they want an mp3 that's embedded with metadata for radio airplay your social media your website epk so there's certain things that are expected that i didn't know when i started and that's similar with like publishing like my first manuscript died in the in the query trenches which i'm not even looking at that as a failure because i learned a lot about how to query um expected word counts and like all these things that i didn't know before and so it's one of those things where, like i definitely learned about it in my mfa program but you don't truly understand unless you're in it doing it and so that's why i'm trying not to be hard on myself about like not having an agent yet because I look back at music and look at, okay, I released my first single in 2019. I would say I started to get a little more attention in 2021 and then things really started to pick up for me in 2022. So looking at that, it was like two and a half, three years 
until I really started to go places. And I've only been querying for about a year. And so I'm kind of making the comparison that I had to learn. I had to really get my feet wet and understand the industry. And now that I understand it a lot better, I am taking steps forward and pitching this new manuscript with knowledge I didn't have before. And so in such a subjective industry, both of them, too, like the whole rejection thing and understanding that they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting the project and that has nothing to do with you. And they're not, you know, trying to tear you down or anything. Um, yeah, it's just not the project for them. Right, exactly. And so music is the exact same way and understanding what people want. Like in, on, in author land, you know, you have agents have manuscript wish lists. Well, in music land, if you're trying to pitch to a radio station and they play country music, I'm, you're not going to pitch a rock song to them because they're right. not going to play it. So it's, it's very similar but they're very different in terms of like the art form and what you're trying to do. But in terms of like how things work, it's not very different. And I think because I've had a lot of experience in music with rejection, it doesn't hurt as much. Like I, I'm not as damaged from rejections as I think I may have been if I didn't start off in music. But it's definitely a roller coaster ride and trying to, again, like I said earlier in the episode, just not lose love for my art form not give up on my creativity and my inspiration and not trying to give into everything going on around me all the chatter because I think with either industry any creative industry that you're in when you get to the point where you've made it whatever that looks like for you if that's getting an agent or if that's getting a number one song or whatever that doesn't mean it's over like that's just the beginning and so I'm looking at this as I need to keep loving my art I need to keep writing because when I get an agent and when I get published what's next oh I gotta write another book and then after that I gotta write another book so if I lose my love for writing just like you were talking about before you weren't happy with your major imagine not being happy with writing after being broken down over the industry or whatever and then having to write for the rest of your life you want to be happy with it right. and so that's why I'm trying to hold on to my love for writing and not losing that because I'm gonna have to keep writing books if I get agented you know what I mean yeah and I'm learning through this podcast that so many people are like yeah writing is kind of a quote unquote side gig for me like Uh -uh. I'm not going to do this full time and for me I'm like yeah I want to my major now is environmental policy. Writing for me is just a hobby. And if I get agented and if I get published, great. But if not, it's kind of like a hobby for me right yeah. now. So it's fun. It's enjoyable. I'm loving it. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, you were like, uh-uh, when I was like, oh, it's just yeah. a hobby. Okay, no, but I understand like the side gig. But what I don't like is when people try to I don't know if you saw the thing on Twitter. This is where my mind went. Like, after what you just said, I agree with what you said, but I thought you were going to go in a different direction. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, so there was this whole thing on Twitter where an agent posted that, that I was, I don't remember exactly what they said, but it was something along the lines of authors and agents, like authors are on one side, agents are on one side. Agents are doing this because they want to make a career out of it. Oh, yeah, I saw that. Right. So it was basically making the thing of, authors don't deserve the level of respect they deserve because this is just a hobby that that's what I don't like it it is a hobby like I agree with that and like when you're writing before you get published like it's a hobby you love doing it and it's gonna have 
copy like quality even when you're publishing you're still doing it but there's this there's the idea around it where authors are doing it for fun and oh it doesn't matter like what happened to them it doesn't matter what we say to them this is just a fun thing when the agents are like yeah this is a business when we're looking at it as a business too especially when you're trying to pitch an agent we're understanding the business we're treating it as a profession even yeah. though it's a hobby for us and so that's that's where I thought you were going that's why I was like no <laughs> oh and then the rest of it came out and you were like okay that's fine yeah <laughs> Because, like, yeah. just from my point of view, it's like, I love to write. And yeah. for me, I don't want to turn it into, like, a profession, even if I do get agented, even if I do get published. Because, like, I don't want to lose that. Right. No, <laughs> absolutely. At the same time, it's, I know it's a business, but, like, right. there's kind of a fine line. And I'm sure that fine line is also in songwriting as well. Yeah, that's exactly what I was just going to say. Like, the music side especially like I love writing because I love writing. I still treat music, even though I'm in the business, it's still hobby-like to me. I love doing it. I do it on my free time. When I sit down to write a song and when I sit down to draft the chapter, I'm not thinking of it as, oh God, this is work. This is businessy. This is a profession. Because if you think of it that way, your mental like creative block is going to come on. And oh, yeah. so even though you're in the industry, like me songwriting and the writing and you like the fiction writing, even though you're in it, you still have that mentality of this is something fun. Like I love to do this because that's what drives you to do it. And so I completely feel the same way with music. Absolutely. Yeah. And as I'm looking at other professions, like I grew up, my dad was and still is a college professor. Yeah. So when I tell people that they're like, okay, then it makes sense that you were looking at marine biology like undergrad colleges at 12 years old because I grew up around, you know, secondary education because my dad has been in it for yeah. years and years. And so when you grow up around an industry, what I'm realizing as I've grown older is part of it is ingrained in you because you've grown up around it. Yeah. And I'm not going into academia with environmental policy, I'm going into, I want to work for environmental NGOs and that kind of area, which is about as far away from a college professor as I see it, because yeah. you're not, te quote unquote, teaching the next generation in a way that most people would be like, oh, you're teaching, you're a college professor, that's fine. I want to teach the next generation in a different way. Right but it's still teaching. Yeah. Like everything yeah. is a teaching moment. Right. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. I think the other thing too is that looking at the different professions and how they're viewed, um, I think that there is a societal kind of idea that some professions are more accepted and others aren't. And what I'm saying here is that someone can look at someone saying, oh, I'm an author or I'm a songwriter to be, oh, you're just hobbying. That's not mm -hmm. real. That's not a real profession, which is, I think, what the agent was accidentally said and then got a bunch of backfire with that. But I think that you need to understand, not you, like people need to understand. Yeah, that, the general you. Right. Yeah. That you need to understand that there's different paths out there, different career paths, and you there there's no one right way to 
find success and to be happy with your life. Someone who is a doctor like my sister has a very different path some, from somebody who's creative like me. But that doesn't mean that she's any better than me. You know, right. Like, you guys are just different people. Right. Exactly. And I think we still need to, as a collective society, not shame somebody for pursuing songwriting or writing or painting, acting. Acting is the exact same thing. Like breaking into the entertainment industry as an actor out in Hollywood, like everybody needs to fight for their space, just like music and fiction writing. Like you need to keep putting in the work and get better and like break through. And Mm -hmm. if you look at every single successful songwriter, actor, fiction writer, like they didn't just wake up one day and have a publishing deal. They had to work for it. And so when people are saying that, okay, you're just doing this as a hobby. That's not a real career, blah, blah, blah. You don't understand like the amount of work that we're putting in to improve our craft and to to, to try to make it, you know what I mean? So I think it's definitely a societal thing going on that gives this perception that the art form paths are like not as good or inferior to education. It's not inferior. It's just different. And I think I agree with you. There is a quote unquote societal norm of the fact that oh in order to be successful you have to have a lot of money and Mm -hmm. to me like success is relative it's completely subjective it's fluid like no one is going to be successful the same way right yeah and I think speaking about the publishing industry I can tell you firsthand an MFA does help but you do not need an MFA to get published like people have this in their heads there was a whole thing on twitter the other day about mfas and if they're relevant or whatever where like i always defend my mfa program because i learned so much but there Mm -hmm. are authors out there who don't have an mfa and they're published so people also put these labels like if you don't have this degree or if you don't have this experience or this background it's a no for you and that's not the case right and like you said earlier or maybe I said this again, it's early. So if I'm mixing things I up, know. <laughs> I know the STEM side of environmental policy. And so my environmental policy degree is kind of a mix of environmental science, political science and international relations, which is very strange to me, but that's how they're centering the undergraduate degree. And so I have so much experience in the STEM world, but not so much in environmental policy. So I'm putting myself out there and being like, hey, I'm completely new at policy. Somebody please help me and teach me. (laughs) And I feel like that's what the publishing industry and like any entertainment industry or actually, excuse me, let me rewind. Any industry is an opportunity to change and to grow in a different direction that the collective you uh, being society and also like the you individual can grow and change. Absolutely. I completely agree. There's definitely a societal thing going on. And I think the more that our generation, this generation proves like there's space for everybody and we can chase our dreams no matter what experience we have, what credentials we have, 
and really go out there and make the changes because changes have been happening. And so I think that, you know, letting the world continue to progress in that direction of change is going to create a better future. And I still think there is a lot of room to be, you know, evolving in publishing. Um, but I do have, I have seen just in the first year of me like querying and watching, there has been some evolution and how things are done and all of that and making a greater space for like diverse writers, like whatever category you would fall into and diversity and underrepresented voices. Like there's changes being made in that way. I've seen, you know, some people talk about the query submission form on Query Tracker, like saying like, hey, like maybe we should take out all these extra questions and just keep the basic ones because the other ones can induce anxiety, which I have anxiety. I completely agree with that. Like when I'm reading a question that's like asking something that's super creative, like the extra creative questions where I love fun creative questions, but in terms of that context, I feel like I'm getting graded. Like I've always had that mindset as a student, like there's a right answer to this. Right. So when I'm writing something, I, I have my query letter, my synopsis, my pages, I filled out all the information. When there's fun questions at the end, it's like, oh God, this is the test part, you know? And right. so people have been starting to say like, maybe don't include those questions. And I saw a couple of agents take them off. And so there's changes being made because there's conversations happening. And I think as long as there's conversations surrounding all these things, that's what brings the and then here we are literally having a conversation. Right. <laughs> exactly. Going from topic to topic to topic. Yeah. Yet still being centered around the whole, I guess, essence of yeah. this episode, which is you can be in different creative spaces at once. Yeah. Mm -hmm. it, it can happen. And don't put yourself into a box because when you put yourself into a box, that's when it starts to not become fun. Right. Yep. And it's absolutely. just very interesting. I know I say very interesting. I'm like, I'm a writer. I should be more eloquent. But also this podcast is to get to know people behind the screen. Right. Because there are real people behind the screens, behind any account, unless they're bots and AI. Let's <laughs> get into that and a whole other... There's a whole other spectrum of that. It's not my area of expertise, so I'm just going to leave it at that. <laughs> They're out there. Yeah. I know they exist. Just I'm a real person, and I want people to get to know the me behind the screen. Yeah. No, that's awesome. And I think, too, like, it's really interesting just as a fan of stuff to see like I love watching interviews of I don't know Rick Riordan talking about his latest book or you know one of my favorite songwriters talking about the inspiration behind their song and talk about the struggles and all of that because it's the reality of a creative industry I think once you start to become known you try to pursue you, you try to present yourself in the most positive way on social media and in the public. And so as fans of songwriters and musicians and authors and all that, when you see their online presence and you see them doing all these great things and New York Times bestsellers and all of that, 
you get this perception of, oh my God, they're living the perfect life. They have a right. struggles. Look at them succeed. And so that's why I love watching the interviews and reading the interviews because they definitely open up about the challenges they faced, what they had to do to get to where they are now and just make it super realistic because we're not in the same we're in the same space as them in many ways like we're at different levels of our careers but just because you're published that doesn't mean that takes away the writer's block and publishing and all of the things that goes along with it the ups and downs of everything everybody faces it no matter where they are and so that's why i love to listen to people talk about their experiences too because it puts it into perspective and shows that we are really in the same boat no matter where we are Exactly. And that's kind of why I'm centering around Gen Z, not only because I think it would be, I would feel uncomfortable if I was interviewing somebody much older than me, <laughs> has a lot more life experience and then can go, yeah, however, because I'm just so comfortable interviewing Gen Z as a space, because I feel like as a collective generation, Yes, we're cynical. Yes, we're sarcastic, but we can also be serious. Yeah. And I guess that's what this is. I call this my professionally unhinged project. <laughs> just talk. And some of it is nonsense, but a lot of it are insights that I think older generations don't know that Gen Z has. Like Gen Z is starting to become people who have what I call scary adult jobs. <laughs> and a lot of the older generation I feel like is forgetting about it because they still think of us as children children yeah yeah absolutely and I think what's really interesting too is like you said like we're sassy or sarcastic but we are serious and I think this podcast is really demonstrating how there's power in conversation and not just being silly and being fun but really like having a heart to something and being open about stuff being vulnerable about stuff no matter what way that's being shared and i think the more that we have conversations and we use our personalities in order to have these conversations and get these points across it's engaging like i love listening to conversations that are very authentic and genuine i find myself connecting more to those than the very scripted point by point here's the facts here's the statistics reading from a script kind of things like that's not authentic that's not how the world works so right. i think that this kind of conversation where it's literally just two creative sitting down for a conversation there's funness in here but there's also you know very serious topics that have come up and authentic experiences and that's what's and that's what i feel like gen z has to be like i'm calling out our generation a little bit here because we don't talk about this stuff and so I'm kind of forcing myself to talk about this because yeah. I know that this is important and I'm not even done with my first draft yet and yet I'm putting myself out there because I feel like this is something that needs to be talked about because like I say in the introduction episode of season one like Gen Z is the next generation that's growing up and going into adult spaces. So I guess maybe this is a thing of like, hey, talk about experiences, because yeah. that's how people see you as, you know, not like a child, oh, yeah. but as a person 
who has learned and has grown and is now, you know, 18, 19, 20, 21, all the way up to 26 or recently 26, like you are. And I feel like a lot of people, I'm 20, but yet so many of the older generation, they see me as still a child because I'm in college and I don't quote unquote understand the world the way that they do. And I know I don't, but that's because I only have 20 years of life experience to their however many years they have. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's also really interesting as well. Like you said, you're doing this podcast and you're doing something very important and you're creating a space for people to share their experiences, which is one of the main reasons why I have my podcast is called Right on Track, a songwriting podcast. And it's not just focused on our generation, but I have guests on from all different areas of the industry, all ages. And I have learned so much just from talking to other people and allowing people to hear their stories, share their stories and allowing others to hear other stories. Because I think that it's not only a way for people to be taken seriously when they put themselves out there, but it's also creating an understanding that no matter where you are in your journey, whatever whatever creative industry you're in, there's other people out there who are dealing with the same things. Like I, just talking to you, like you're, you're sharing things that I've experienced when I'm doing my podcast. I can be talking to a songwriter who wrote for Keith Urban or somebody like a very popular songwriter and they're sharing experience that here's me I'm still pretty new who've had the exact same experience so it kind of levels things out a little bit and makes people realize that we're just normal people like we're literally just normal people like no matter what you're doing no matter what happened in your life no matter what success you've had however you wanted to define that we're Mm -hmm. literally just people with similar experiences the same emotions like going through life figuring things out having experiences having great moments bad moments like we've all had all those things and when you have these conversations you make that super clear and i'm going to tell you for sure like the people who listen to this podcast, not just the guests on it, but people who discover this podcast who are in Gen Z are going to listen to these conversations and be like, I see myself in that. Like, I thought I was this one person over in this corner of the world just experiencing this one thing. But I've experienced that too. I feel that way. And then it makes them inspired to embrace who they are. And it also may inspire them to start openly talking about their experiences too. And I think the more these conversations happen, the more people are inspired to just go out there and share their experiences because incredible things can I mean, I'm not expecting anything to come out of this. <laughs> because again, this is just me trying something new. And completely putting myself out there I'm absolutely terrified (laughs) but the fact that I feel strongly enough that Gen Z doesn't get a chance to talk because we're overshadowed I put that term loosely but I think you understand what I mean when I say overshadowed absolutely by the older generations and like this is I feel like this is our time Gen Z should be able to step up into spaces like podcasting or creative anything or maybe even the STEM industry and be taken seriously. And I feel like every generation, once they get to the point where they're at the cusp of, you know, college and like scary adult jobs, like that's the time 
where they should be putting themselves out there and being like, look, I can be a kid still. And I still am quite young. Like, I'm 20. Most people, that's, like, super young. But I still have this level of life experience where I can be an adult. And I am showing that. And it's okay to be both an adult and a child at the same time. And I guess that's what I'm trying to get at with this whole podcast project. Yeah. No, I completely agree. And I love that point. I think that no matter what age, I think it's great to hold on to the child in you, especially in a creative industry. It's fun. Yes, music is difficult sometimes. Yes, publishing can be a train wreck at times. But at the heart of that is a creative art. And that art form is being shared as a product when it's put out into the world. But before it's shared into the world, it's a creative endeavor that like we love doing this. And I think in order to hold on to that inspiration, and especially with fiction writing, we're literally creating worlds, characters, and all of these things that are literally coming straight from our brains. And I think that in order to do that, you need to have a sense of wonder and that comes from being a child like when we're so young everything's like wondrous to us you know and I think yeah. to be authors we're holding on to a little bit of that wonder and that inspiration and that asking you know why like when I was younger like I asked why all the time and you know I remember when my cousin was growing up um she would ask why all the time and, and after a while it's like stop asking me why <laughs> but it's so important like when you're writing fiction like why does this happen you know, why does this make sense? Why does this matter? How does this work? Like you're right. asking all these questions and you're opening your mind up to the impossible and the what ifs. And I think that's something that comes from being a child. And like, even though I'm 26 years old, like my brain still works and like the, oh, but what if that happened? Like, I wonder why this is this way, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think there's no shame in that. And I think that's like a big part of this generation is like we're not only looking at the world as it is but we're asking the questions of like how things could be different or what made something a certain way and like really like widening our perspective and I think that's a big part of being an author yeah as soon as you said like why <laughs> you asked why as a child I feel like a lot of people in the creative space no matter what creative space that they're in have also asked why myself included <laughs> And I always remember being told, you know, I would ask why in school all the time. And I'd be like, it's just is. Like, stop yeah. it. <laughs> but you can't say that to a five-year-old who's asking, like, why does my tooth come out? Like, and you're a kindergarten <laughs> teacher, right? You can't just be like, I don't know because you don't want to say that to a five-year-old kid because this is a five-year-old kid. Yeah. You know? yeah. So you're like, don't ask questions. <laughs> yeah. Or like, oh, that's yeah. just the way it is and you're going to have to deal with that. Yeah. And yeah, for I me, like, I've stopped asking why just point blank and I've just kind of internalized that. And I think that's what a lot of our generation is doing it's internalizing the questions whereas with projects like your podcast or my podcast where we're taking things kind of out of the woodwork so to speak and putting it on display people are going to start my hope is people are going to start asking why again 
like just point blank, like why this, why that? And I don't know if you've noticed, but I feel like in the publishing industry on Twitter, people are asking why and getting genuine answers yeah. instead of being like deflected away or turned away and being like, that's just the way it is. Deal with it. Yeah, no, I think that's a really great point. And I also think too, like it's definitely great to see people asking why on Twitter getting answers. I've seen that too. And it just makes things much more clear. Like people say, oh, your work count needs to be in this range. Well, why? So if someone would say, oh, that's just because of the way it is. I would be like, yeah, but why is that the way it is? Right, so yeah. Giving actual answers. Well, it's because, you know, like, you know, certain age ranges have reader expectations, but also like, you know, cost of printing, like we need to stay within a certain range or like the thickness of a book or like there's like actual like answers. And it's like, okay, we're getting these answers now. And I definitely have grown up like asking the questions and being told like, you know, stop asking questions and blah, 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 blah. And, you know, I definitely like even in school, I was always the one like raising my hand and like asking further questions. And I've definitely had instances where just I could get the teacher's vibe of them like being irritated with me asking questions. Oh, yeah. and so I've stopped asking questions, which is terrible. Like when you're in school, like you should be asking questions. You should be trying to learn. But because of like some of these teachers who are from the older generations, they're, you know, irritated by kids asking. And right, I think because they were raised on kids should be seen and not heard. Yeah, absolutely. And so I think it's really great to see people asking questions um, and not like, and I think too, like when people are asking questions, it can be seen as you're trying to challenge something. Oh, so yeah. like when people are asking on Twitter, like, oh, why, why this, why that in the publishing industry, some people can take it as they're challenging the industry. No, that's not it at all. Like, we just want to understand. And like, right, the that's genuine curiosity for an industry yeah. we're trying to get into. Like I recently asked on my twitter like i tweeted out i was like what is a good word count for a ya dystopia because that's the project that i'm working on right now right. and i am a very avid overwriter yeah and so i kind of want to have like a word count in mind of like okay final edits here's what this has to be right. as i'm editing and as i'm drafting towards querying in the next few years yeah. Yeah, it's really great. I think that asking these questions and being aware of what's going on and just trying to learn, that's the whole point of asking questions, not trying to challenge something or change something necessarily. It's just we want to understand why we're doing things so we can best do them or right. else we're just going through the motions of doing something because that's how we're supposed to do it without like any kind of context. Like I love context. I like understanding you know, the process and what I'm trying to do right. so that my brain can like process it. And like, especially like with writing queries and like with, you know, just writing the book too, like, like my first novel, like I struggled a lot with voice. And so, you know, I would ask like, well, why, wh what exactly is voice? Like, why is that so important? And so like I was getting answers and now like I understand what voice is and what I'm writing, that's a focus point for me. It's like, okay, this is what voice is. This is what I actually have to do to achieve that. And this is why it's important. And having that understanding makes it a lot easier to apply something versus not understanding what I'm trying to do and why I'm trying to do it. It's like, oh, I'm just doing this because that's what I was told. There's a disconnect there. Oh, and yeah. I think have the understanding it's a lot easier to process it and do the thing when you know why you're trying to do the thing 
Exactly. And I feel like not to bash the school system in any way. This is just my own personal experience with it. I feel like my creative juices were kind of squashed because I stopped asking why. And then in high school, when I took advanced English classes, like I took AP language and composition and AP literature and composition, they started asking like, well, what do you think about this? Why do you think this is the way it is? And they asked me why. And I didn't know how to answer because I was just like, I wasn't quote unquote trained to think that way. I was trained to think, okay, this is the answer. Don't question it. Oh, Absolutely. Yeah, that goes back to something I said super early on, which is why I struggled in English in high school. When I got to college English, and they were asking me to like, write essays, explaining why I had my own interpretation. I really struggled at the beginning, because in high school, that's not how it is. And so like, I would tell my professor, like, I, I thought there was like a right answer here. And they're like, no, like, defend your point like explain your interpretation <laughs> and it took me forever to wrap my brain around like oh my god I can actually like defend my point now and because I was like you know held back from doing that for so long it did take a while for me to understand like how to come up with my own opinions again and share them because that was something that was you know frowned upon in high school English when there was like a right answer to everything that's so strange because my experience with English when I was in K through 12 was always like, okay, there's a right answer. But underneath it was like, okay, I'm going to let you explain your point, but also tell you why you're wrong at the same time. Oh my gosh. <laughs> you know, it wasn't like, oh, that's wrong. There's only one right answer. It's like the interpretation of the teacher is law. Like, that's the only one right answer. And as I'm going into this creative space of fiction writing, I know that's not the case. Everybody has their own interpretation, and everybody's interpretation is valid, whether it's quote-unquote right or not. Yeah, and I think in the industry, like, especially when you're getting into finding the right agent for your manuscript and how subjective it is, like, someone, some agent can say, yeah, that that plot, it it doesn't flow well but then another agent can say oh my god that's like the most amazing thriller plot i've ever read i want to represent this Mm -hmm. and so i think in a creative space it's so subjective that there isn't really a right or wrong like there definitely are things like getting into like the grammatical stuff yes there's a right positioning of quotation marks yes you got indent paragraphs like those are like right and wrong things but that's like the mechanical stuff that's not the creative side so when you're in the creative side there's definitely this spectrum of yeah maybe that's accepted and that's like the norm but also like this thing was done by this author and that blew up so they kind of broke a little bit of expectations on the creative side and it doesn't always land with everybody. And so that's why it's just finding the right person. Like I truly believe like every author querying right now, they have a story to tell and they have a story to tell for a reason. And it's just improving their craft and focusing on like which agents could represent this based on their MSWLs. But at the same time, like if an agent wants a thriller, well, maybe my thriller isn't the one they're looking for. And that doesn't mean mine's bad. It just means it's not 
they don't see themselves working on this project right just for them personally and that's okay and I feel like in the world of creative rejection as I'm calling it you're going to get a lot of that where it's like this is great however it's not for me yeah yeah for sure and I think the other thing too is that I've really thought about this lately from the reader perspective because when an agent is reading queries and manuscripts, yes, they have a marketing side. They're thinking, how can I market this? Where can I fit into the market? What editors I can possibly submit this to? But there's also a level of what they like, their personal preferences. And I've gotten rejections. Um, I got a rejection on a, a full that I sent that it was basically like, there's nothing wrong with this. Like, it was the nicest rejection I've ever gotten. The agent was so sweet, basically saying, there's nothing I can pinpoint in this that didn't work for me. I just didn't love it enough. And it hurt, but like at the end of the day, like the book worked for them, but mm -hmm. it wasn't, they didn't fall in love with it enough to represent it, you know? And so I've been looking at it as a reader point of view, like when I'm looking for a new book to read, like I go on iBooks and I, go to the YA section, I look at the thrillers and the fantasies and I read the blurbs and within seconds I can realize, yeah, that's not for me or, oh, I would totally read this. And the ones that I kind of get like a, oh, I think I could read this. Like I put them in my like one to read list, like my TBR. And then like when I'm going through to pick, like I choose the one I want. And like, I'm looking at that as like, okay, the agent's going through, they're saying, that's not for me, this is. And then they have their maybe piles, which is like when I'm choosing a book, like this is my maybe pile, the ones I want to read. Right. And then ultimately it comes down to which ones do I like the most. And like what I've noticed is like every single book I'm looking at, it's been published. An agent has loved it. An editor has loved it. A publishing house put it out there. And so somebody loved this book, but it's not for me as a reader. And right. so I'm just keeping that perspective as like the agents are going through the same thing when they're picking what books to represent. I'm sure when they have their foes and they're looking at what they want to offer on, once they get to the point of narrowing their list down, I'm sure every single one of those books is marketable and great, but it just comes down to which one do they connect with the most. And that's something that you can't control at all. Right. It's, and I think that's a really valid point and a point that a lot of authors don't see because they just think of it as, oh, it's a rejection. Boo. Instead of <laughs> thinking about, you know, oh this wasn't right for the agent at the time and maybe the agent is like in my next round of submissions like submit it again and see what happens and maybe it'll be a yes instead of a we'll see yeah absolutely and I think too it's like you really need to look at you know there's foreign rejections but some of them like are tiered like I can tell they're like foreign but then at the end you'll say like i got a rejection from an agent recently and at the end it said i'd be delighted to look at your next manuscript so maybe the whole thing was a form but that addition at the end is saying something whether that's they liked the voice or maybe they liked my writing style maybe that concept of that book wasn't right for them but they liked my style of writing and so they just opened the door i'd be delighted to look at your next manuscript Right. And so there's those little gems like in those rejections that, you know, even though they're forms, like really read, like I saw an author that said like, 
you know, when they opened their query, um, like response, and they saw the unfortunately or the but, they just clicked off of it. No, literally read your whole rejections because like there's things at the end that would say like, you know, submit your next book. And I got a rejection once where the agent said, I'm sorry, I can't request more because I have a client working on something too similar. So they're oh. reading, I got a reason. Yeah, exactly. So like, yeah. they will give you reasons. If you stop reading at the thank you for your submission, but unfortunately, and then click off, like you're going to miss out on maybe some invitations to resubmit or a reason for the rejection. So definitely read all of the rejection. Don't click off of it. <laughs> there is a reason for everything people do. And I yeah. feel like, especially in the creative industry, whether it's illustrating or comic books or, you know, yeah, writing or songwriting, there's a reason for everything. And I think collectively as creative people trying to get out there, whether they're acting or writing or singing, we forget that a lot of the times because we're just so like, we want to get out there and we want to go. And these roadblocks are there, but they can be taken away. Absolutely. And I feel like we forget that a lot of the time. Absolutely. Yeah. And the other thing I want to look at, too, is that I want to find the right agent for me. And so I don't want I wouldn't want an agent to request on. Oh, yeah, this is good. I don't love it. I don't love it a lot. But, you know, it's marketable and cool. So I'm going to, you know, I'm going to offer on it. Yeah. I don't want to have an agent who's like half in it. You know, like I want the agent that's going to be the biggest champion for my writing for my whole career. And it takes it takes time to find that person. And, you know, I make the parallel to finding a producer. I went through two producers before I found my current producer who I've been working with since I released my first single. And he and I are like perfect fit. Like we think alike won't say things at the same time like thinking the exact same thing half the time like when we're working in the studio like we're not really like we're talking but we're not really like discussing because like we just understand each other and like I'm doing something before he can even tell me to do it and so there's that connection and we laugh a lot we have such a fun time we get work done the music is amazing and so my first producer wasn't like that my second producer wasn't like that but I found the one that I work well with and I look at it the same as like, as an author, like I want to find my partner, like my agent that understands me and is so like excited about my stuff that, you know, we have such a great time and it's a great business relationship. And so just from the producers, I like, it took me a little bit of time to find the right producer for me. Mm-hmm. And so it's going to take time for me to find the right agent for me. It's not much different. Right. And I feel like because you have experience in another creative industry going into fiction writing, you have a little bit more, dare I say, quote unquote, real expectations of what it is versus me going into it, not going into any creative form other than fiction writing. I thought, you know, back in 2020, or 2022, when I first started my Twitter account, it was going to be all sunshine and rainbows and it was going to be great. And that's, don't do that. Don't go into something thinking it's going to be sunshine and rainbows. It's not. not. And so that's what I meant by like a quote unquote, more real experience than what I had coming into it. I definitely think so. Because when I started in music, I had the unrealistic perspective like oh I'm gonna release a single and people are gonna want to interview me 
who's to me, Michelle? Like, nobody knows me. I have no interviews, like, under my belt at the time. Like, who's going to want to talk to me? Nobody right. did. Like, literally nobody did. So, like, I was a little disappointed for the first, like, year and a half of releasing music because no one was listening to my stuff. Nobody wanted to talk to me. And so I definitely had the unrealistic expectations versus now that I've been through that and like I, I'm starting to you know get deeper into publishing and hopefully find an agent I definitely have more realistic expectations sure I wish like I'd wake up tomorrow with an offer of representation which that can come any day like literally like it can come any day but a rejection can come any day too and so like I'm being realistic about my goals and focusing on what I can control, which is writing. Like I'm still exactly. writing, I'm writing the next thing. I'm like currently revising my young adult fantasy if the thriller doesn't get representation, so I have something else to go. I'm currently plotting another manuscript that I'm gonna write during NaNoWriMo because mm -hmm. I wanna keep writing and that's all I can control, literally. Like my writing, I can control, like how I put my query package together, like I can control that. But once I hit send on a submission, like it's out of my hands now. Like, I can't control right. that. So you can't, like, fight the system. You can't be angry at the system because that's just the nature of it. So having realistic expectations and focusing on what you can't control is what I've tried to do. And that's what I'm kind of evolving to think of as the year has gone by. And I've grown as not only as just a creative person, but as a person in general. Because I feel like, I'm 20. I'm going to learn so much every single year because, like, I feel like when you're in your teens and when you're in your 20s, just from my experiences with my friends growing up and also my cousins, that you change so much in, like, from 10 to, like, 30. Right. That you're not the same person that you were maybe even, like, three months ago or six months ago from like when we're talking right now right. and I feel like that growth can help because you're at well I guess any age is like consistently evolving but I feel like when you're 10 to 30 you're evolving more because you're learning about the world like when you're going from 42 to like 45 <laughs> you're still evolving right but it's not as much because you've been kind of maybe in the same job for 20 years right. or been living in the same space for like five years. And so you're used to it. But when you're in that 10 to 30 range, you might be moving, you're moving schools. You might change hobbies like at the drop of a hat because like you might want to be a vet when you're 11. But like six months later, when you turn 12, you want to be like a detective or something like that. Yeah, so, absolutely. Something you said that I want to highlight is that you said that, you know, it's comfortable. And I think that the most growth comes when you do something out of the box, when you're trying something that's not comfortable for you. That's when growth happens. That's when you understand things. That's when you become wiser and you start to understand the world and understand whatever you're trying to do. Like when I was in my MFA program, I was super comfortable in that. Like I did it for three years. I was all happy in the program. I was writing my book. I was making friends and all of that. But the second I was thrown actually into the publishing industry, when I started querying on July 5th of last year, I started the day after the 4th of July, I was like super like out of my element. I was like so uncomfortable. I was like, what am I in? What is going on? And 
that discomfort like i think we can look at it as a bad thing but it's not like when you're in a state of discomfort and something new that just shows like okay like this is something new that's okay i can learn and i can grow i can understand what i'm trying to do i can become more wiser with what i'm trying to do i can be more strategic and learn and, and you know expand my education even more by actually being in the real life experience of that and so i think when you are in something comfortable you're in this safe little bubble and you're all happy but then again like if you stay in that same space you're not going to see growth you may not see success you might may not be reaching the goals that you want to reach because you're afraid to move into a state of discomfort but you know like you said like you can change very quickly like last year at this time i had just started researching agents this year like i'm in way different space than i was back then i still have room to learn in the industry of course but i know way more than i did a year ago and so I'm a little more confident in myself and I understand things much better. And if I didn't push through that discomfort and if I would have, you know, thought, oh, well, this is like too uncomfortable, like I'm not doing this and turn my back on it, then I wouldn't have grown and I wouldn't have chased this dream. That's a really good point. And actually, when you said like, you have to have discomfort in order to have growth, I want to highlight a YouTube channel that I've been watching I watched when I was younger, but I recently started re-watching again once I hit college is Yes Theory, where their whole channel is literally doing things that are uncomfortable. And they highlight like, yeah, it was extremely uncomfortable at the time, but I took a chance and I grew and I learned. And I feel like that's what this podcast is for me because as I said earlier, I'm an introvert. And as I'm talking through, people are like, you're an introvert? I'm like, no way. No, that's just my extrovert training. <laughs> you know, like just extrovert training slash life training. Yeah. So I volunteered at my local zoo from, you know, 13 to, I said 17 in another episode, but no, it was 13 to 16. And so I literally remember vividly the kind of instructor being like okay this is how you smile this is how you interact <laughs> with somebody and so I call that my extrovert training because we literally had like sessions on the training day where it was like half an hour of like learning how to smile learning how to interact with people oh my gosh and yeah. I feel like yes our generation needs that but not in the way that they were thinking our generation needs it because we're so overshadowed and overlooked and I feel like that's why when actors and songwriters and you know authors get thrust into the limelight seemingly overnight and quirks that they had like the night before when they weren't as popular versus like their quote unquote an overnight sensation. Yeah. Like, oh, I don't like it anymore. And I feel like society shouldn't have that mindset because you don't change overnight. You no. change over a series of time. Mm -hmm. And I think yeah. people need to understand that you can't just immediately change overnight. You're allowed to change. You're allowed to make mistakes no matter what age you are. Mm -hmm. The world changes. If the world didn't change, like, you know, women wouldn't have the right to vote. 
and you know we wouldn't have all of this environmental protection that we have now yeah would be a very different place absolutely yeah and i i love how it's like extrovert training like i'm such an introvert too and people like who've talked to me during interviews for music stuff and when i do like little live shows and stuff it's like you're not an introvert uh yeah i am like when i'm in like any kind of like crowded place or like party or whatever like i can put on the face like i can make myself energetic but the second i get home man i'm like in my bed like unwinding because like it's just so overwhelming and i'm just like thinking that in a couple months i'm going to music awards and I have two this year, two music awards, one in Atlanta, one in Nashville. And mm -hmm. I went to my first award show last year in Nashville. And I was like so ridiculously overwhelmed at the point where like I enjoyed myself. But like, especially like we have like a red carpet thing and media. And like I've done interviews, but like five interviews like in a row, like on a red carpet. It's like, oh my God, like I like I, I was so stressed out. And like this year, like there was a pre-party at one of the award shows, and my one friend was like, Oh, come to the pre-party. And I'm like sitting there thinking, a pre-party the night before an award show like i don't know if i could do it like because i'm introverted but the other thing too is like being like willing to network is a huge part of music and in publishing too but especially in music like i could be sitting down at a party and next to me can be a music executive or like a publishing executive right at, um you know like music publishing house for, for songwriters there's there's publishing deals that you get for songwriting that's like there's publishers for that record executives all these people you never know who you're talking to and so networking is really important but like for somebody who is introverted it's very difficult and it takes a lot of energy and so you know like shout out to you for doing this podcast and put your, putting yourself out there talking to other people because it's a great thing but you know, like on the outside, you may seem like an extrovert. Like I'm talking to you and I'm like, you're so fun. You're so energetic, but I know you're an introvert and I can totally understand. Cause like I'm the same way, like outwardly you show this like fun, energetic, chatty kind of personality, but inside there's like this, you know, battle going on. Like, oh my God, like sensory overload. I'm so stressed out. I'm so anxious, blah, blah, blah. Right. And then like you get out of it. And it's like, I got to chill for a second. Cause like my brain is like overflowing right now. Right. And that's the whole reason. Like people are like, Hey, like, let's go out and do stuff. And yeah. like, but the thing is my friends know not to invite me to like frat parties. Yeah. <laughs> they're like, she's not going to enjoy it. She's <laughs> going to walk in look around and be like, this is not the environment for her. No. Walk out the door. And I know frat parties are like a huge part of the college experience. Yeah. But when you're an introvert, like you're kind of forcing yourself into that position. Yeah. And for me, like that's not for me. No, exactly. <laughs> and so I think a lot of people have to understand that I feel like a lot of creative people are introverts, uh -huh. but because they're in such a creative space where you have to network and it's ever changing, you have to have some sort of extrovert training because, yeah. you know, you have to kind of put on a mask uh -huh. and be like, hey, I have to kind of put on my professional face. Yeah. But also still be who I am on the inside and in right. a creative industry that's just so hard. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's definitely part of it. And it takes time to get used to 
Um, and I've definitely gotten, you know, more comfortable with doing interviews and talking and stuff like that. Like when I started and I had my first radio interview, like I like cringe listening back to it because I was so out of my element. But like we talked about not too long ago with pushing through the discomfort to grow, like now I host my own podcast too. And it's like three years ago, no way, you know, like absolutely not. Um, And I'm sure like for you too, it's like, this is going to be a major like growth point for you like because you wanted to do a podcast and you waited to do it for a couple months because of that introvert nature and like whatever other fears you may have had and then once you're in it you're like this is fun like I'm talking to other authors like this is really fun and you know doors can open when you try to step outside the box and you know try to put yourself out there despite being an introvert and I totally feel that and I definitely think that a lot of creative people are introverts that's definitely part of Speaking of which, I believe, like, I love talking with you, but also, like, I know that my attention span is not that great because, like, I'm ADHD. So, like, me sitting here and talking with you, like, this is fun. But also, at the same time, like, we, I feel like wrapping, we're at a good stopping point. Yeah, and kind of wrap up the episode. Yeah, absolutely. And so, at the end of every episode, I ask a question to my guests, where both they and I can answer. And so, this question, since it's so center, this episode has been so centered around like inspiration and songwriting and fiction writing. Like, what are your inspirations when it comes to songwriting and fiction writing? Oh, wow. Okay. I love this question. So in terms of songwriting, my three biggest inspirations are Julia Michaels, Kelsey Ballerini, and Taylor Swift. So Julia Michaels, she started out as a songwriter. I don't know if you know her, but she had a breakthrough. Yes, I love her. So she is an incredible songwriter. And I knew her like work before she even started releasing her own music and so I think it's really cool seeing her because she was was super quiet too I remember I was watching like an interview with her and they said yeah there's this you know young girl sitting over here in the corner by herself and then someone went over and talked to her and so like she seemed like super quiet too like the introvert side um but you know in terms of like the voice thing like I I know her songwriting style so well where like I'll listen to a song and I think I bet Julia is on, on this song. I bet she has credit. And I'll look at the songwriting credits and there's her name. And so, so interesting how like, you know, songwriters have voices just as much as the authorial voice. Um, in terms of Kelsey Ballerini, she's my favorite country artist, as we discussed not too long ago. Yeah. Um, and I also love Taylor Swift, of course. So those are my top three. And then in terms of fiction writing, So the author who inspired me to start writing at all was Sarah Shepard, and she wrote Pretty Little Liars. And I actually got the chance to meet her in a Barnes & Noble, like this semester I started, this semester I started my master's degree. Mm -hmm. And it was a great timing because this was right after I got my first critiques back. And I was like, super like uh like these are so bad how can I ever do this and so I met Sarah like not long after that and it was super inspiring to hear her talk and you know talk to her one-on-one for a couple minutes 
And so she's the one who inspired me to write young adult mysteries and thrillers, which is the space I started in. Mm-hmm. But now I'm starting to bridge into young adult fantasy as well. And Rick Riordan is my favorite Percy Jackson author. You know, everybody knows Rick, <laughs> Uncle oh, Rick. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, so he's like the one who really inspired me to really dive into fantasy and so yeah I really love him as well and another author I've started to really love lately is Diana Urban she just released her I believe third novel Lion in the Deep Um, it was incredible and you know she has started to inspire me a lot too because I followed her on Instagram or sorry Twitter and just she's super public and open about her experiences and everything and I really enjoy her books, but, like, she's the kind of person like us, you know, like, talking about experiences and not only talking about the good things, but sharing the struggles as well. And so from the creative and business side, you know, looking at her, share her inspirations and her struggles, too, as she's kind of breaking into publishing with all of her success, it was super inspiring. So, yeah, Sarah Shepard, Rick Riordan, and um, recently Diana I feel like this is going to be so cliche for Gen Z authors, but for me, Rick Riordan is such a huge (laughs) reason why I'm like, young adult is for me. Yeah. Because, like, my parents are like, why do you know so much about this stranger who's our age? Like, why? And I'm like, (laughs) because... This guy has inspired literally a generation. Yeah. Like, I'm not even kidding. Yeah. Anybody I, I talk to has been like, oh, I've heard about him, or oh, my friend loves him, or, you know, I've read his books. And like, just the way my best friend, who I have been sharing my manuscripts with since we were 13, they literally have said, your Rick Riordan voice has come out (laughs) like it's still yours I can just see a little bit of Rick Riordan in there and as soon as they told me that I I remember just staring at my phone as soon as they texted me like are you are you sure (laughs) sure?" (laughs) question mark not believing that my best friend had just told me that I unintentionally sound like one of my favorite authors yeah and I was like yeah, that's this is so amazing cool. this is great that's like so I don't cool. want to lose that <laughs> that's so cool and I think I've had that experience with songwriting too um because my inspirations like span genres like Kelsey's country Julia's more pop Taylor does pop and country so I have like a little bit of a blend of all that um and my songwriting voice is definitely unique but you know Taylor has some really sassy stuff, really bold stuff. And it was so funny because like at one of my last recording sessions, I was like in the vocal booth, like singing a song and my producer just like paused the recording and was like, okay, Taylor Swift. (laughs) Because like, it was like, so like, it, it was something she would sing. But it doesn't sound at all like her songs, but it's like something she would do. And so I think like, one of the biggest takeaways I think we can, you know, kind of end on is like, having inspirations is good you know and having inspirations come out in your own work is not a bad thing because the authors and the musicians that we love 
they were inspired by people and exactly. you know like they're so open about that like you listen to interviews like carly pierce or kelsey ballerini they're talking about the artists who inspire them and you can hear a little bit of that in their music they are their individual songwriters and artists but you can hear a little bit of oh i can see how that person inspired them and that's not a bad thing because everybody was inspired by everybody who was inspired by everybody else right. and so it's not a bad thing and it's not you know, like a thing to be afraid of, like, oh, this is starting to sound a little bit like this, and therefore I can't write that. No, like, it's just a collectively, like, all the things, because we're consuming so much art and so much oh, yeah. music and books. So naturally, like, we're going to learn and pick up on some things, and it's going to, you know, subconsciously, like, find its way into our work. And mm -hmm. that's not a bad thing. I think it's something to embrace, like, you know, respect who our inspirations are and not copy them, but not be afraid of recognizing some of their, you know, voices and their styles in our work, because that's definitely okay. Yeah, no, as soon as you said, like, it's okay to take inspiration, but it's not okay to copy. I was like, yes, that is something that is super important in any creative industry. You can take inspiration, like, I grew up in high school reading Allie Carter and I follow her on Twitter right now. But I have definitely taken some liberties with the draft that I'm working on now that have a little bit of kind of her element in there. And it's like, oh, okay, like I can see it's not as strong as Rick Riordan, but like the way that you, because Rick Riordan and Allie Carter both write very sassy very real characters yeah and so i'm over here going my characters are very sassy and very real yeah and that's just me as a person because i grew up reading them so i guess my personality is kind of like their characters but also not at the same time yeah and so if you're worried that you're taking inspiration from somebody and you're kind of stealing the limelight it's like no it's okay to take inspiration it's okay yeah. to do that you just yeah, can't absolutely. copy them directly right don't plagiarize <laughs> right that's bad please don't do that <laughs> it's okay to take inspiration so if there's anything you take away from this extremely long episode <laughs> inspiration is okay you are allowed to be who you are, even if you think you're not allowed to in the space that you are in currently. Like, and if you're like Demi and I, and you're an introvert, like maybe branch out a little bit at a time. Because if you do it all at once, you're going to get burnt out and it's not going to be fun. Trust me. I know from personal experience, it doesn't work. <laughs> but yeah, thank you for listening to... Cassie's, this episode of Cassie's Crafting Conundrum. And Demi, thank you for giving up your morning to talk with me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. This has been so, so fun. It was so fun chatting with you. Thank you for letting me be a part of this. And thank you for letting me create your intro. Super fun. Of course, you did such an amazing job. <laughs> thank I you. I call you like my, I guess, podcast fairy godmother. Because you literally were like, yeah, girl, do it. It's fine. <laughs> Well, like, fun. <clears throat> so take chances, make some mistakes, but apologize for the mistakes. Yeah. It's actually, and you know, know it's okay to be who you are. That's it. 
Yep, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. Bye.